This is Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 32 in our series for 2014. And today's date is Friday the 22nd of August. And Leon... What have we got rolling on the schedule this week? Well, we're starting off with a terrific interview with John Winning. He is the founder and CEO of Appliances Online. And he talked about how he set up the business. It was actually a business that he incorporated from his father's family business, and uh, which was never online, and he took it on completely online, and uh, it's uh, now surpassed his father's business. Yeah, well surpassed it, yeah. And his father still doesn't have an email address. That's right, that's right. Anyway... Let's have, and then after that, we have a chat with economist Nicholas Gruen, all about uh, personal data management. Which he, uh, Nick sees as a real coming trend. And an economic opportunity. But first of all, let's talk to John Winning. John Winning, uh, Appliances Online. Tell us how it started. So Appliances Online was started by myself on a laptop and a mobile telephone with a 1300 number diverted to that. It, I guess, came on the back of my family's business, Winning Appliances, which I'm fourth generation of now. And uh, we had a warehouse full of product and, uh, I guess, a delivery vehicle and an ability to service the greater Sydney area with deliveries. And we had retail outlets servicing those customers from a retail point of view what I saw was an opportunity to basically take what other retailers were doing in catalogs and put that online and basically on steroids have far more products with far more information and uh, much more dynamically updated more regularly for those customers and it just works how did your father respond when you came to him with this idea to set up an online business I guess originally he tried to work out what the internet was. He still doesn't have an email address. So he basically, I mean, obviously knew what the internet was, but he'd said to me, look, I don't really think that something like that would work. I replied with, well, would people look at a catalog and then pick up a telephone and ring and buy something out of a catalog? He said yes. And I said, well, if they do it out of a catalog, I can tell you it'll definitely get one or two, but not many people would want to buy buy like that. They like to come into a store. And I don't doubt that people do like to come into a store and we have some, some of the best retail stores in the world for them to do that if they want to. But there is certainly a lot of time poor customers like myself on many of my purchases where you just know what you want and you're happy to go online, find that product, it suits your needs and you'll purchase it um, very conveniently. So this was back in 2005, wasn't it? Yeah, in 2005. So the idea came about in early 2004 and it was probably almost a year to put it together by the time we by the time we'd gone live with the website. And now the group has, what, a turnover of $150 million and you employ 500 people, is that right? Yeah, Appliances Online is in excess of $150 million. The group's in excess of $300 million in turnover and we employ yeah, around 500 people. What, what is a group? You also have Big Brown Box, do you not? Yeah, so basically if Appliances Online is your online uh, appliance specialist, Big Brown Box is your online audiovisual specialist, electronic specialist, so to speak. If you want to do a home theatre, get the absolute best advice on amplifiers, surround sound, um, you know, what's going to be the best um, image image for your room, then uh, you would you would talk to the Big Brown Box team. They are absolutely the specialists as appliances online are when you're buying ovens, cooktops, range hoods or laundry products, for example. 
What's been driving the growth of the business? Why, why, why has it taken off like that? Because our customers love us and we love our customers. I think that you know, there's a true, um, a true connection there where we have a, a service that people just love. It's a seriously convenient website. We uh, allow our customers to visit our site, put in their dimensions uh, of the product that they're looking for. They can call us up. We have 24-7 phone support to help them through their order and then by the time you've placed the order for the goods, we have a lot of product in stock. It gets delivered very, very quickly um, with an amazing service. We have the best delivery uh, teams in the country. John, what are some of the imperatives of, a, of an online business? Delivery, fulfillment, customer relations? Where, where, how do you rate them? Yeah, I guess, well, firstly, you need you need to have a good product. So start with the product. If it, if it if it's you don't have a product that people want to buy, then you're wasting your time. So that that's the first thing. Uh, I guess then you need to be able to get people to your website. If no one's visiting your website, then you can't. Um, then you obviously can't sell to them. It's like having a store that no one walks into. And then at the end of it, it's really wrapping it up with that logistics piece. You need to be able to get the goods that you're selling to those customers. So I always look at it in in three ways. I say we're a retailer. We're also a marketing company, but we're certainly a logistics business uh, as well. Being found by people on the web web's pretty crowded these days what do you do to make yourself visible yeah i think uh you've just got to be very very targeted so there's no point in going out there and just blasting people with a whole bunch of spam and banner ads if they're if they're not in the market it's you know once approximately every seven years that someone might be looking to to buy a new fridge and you want to make sure that you know out of those billions of people that are that are viewing uh, the internet every month, that I guess you're in front of the ones that are looking to buy a fridge, not just in front of as many as possible. It's really a much different way of looking at it to traditional marketing, where you might just go and buy a whole bunch of tarps or you know eyeballs on TV or ears on radio, and uh, just trying to get as many people to know about your brand as possible. It's very very targeted uh, marketing, which I think is better for the consumer and better for better for us. Can you explain how that targeted marketing works? What do you actually do? So basically, you look for people that are searching the internet that might have a possible product in mind. Simply on Google, it might be buy fridge in Sydney, for example. That would be an obvious person that is looking for a fridge in Sydney. But equally, you might um, go onto a real estate website and look for people that have uh, that are looking to uh, move house. That would be a little less targeted, but still you would say if someone's moving house, it's likely they're going to be in the market for appliances soon. So you, you might decide to put a, a display ad, a, ad in front of them. Then there's uh, other obvious ones like being on a shopping comparison website. If someone's looking for a price for fridges, obviously they're probably in the market for a fridge so you want to be there but it's not so much buying a banner on the home page of smh with people that are reading the daily newspaper saying hey we're appliances online come visit our website because 99 times or 999 times out of a thousand you're not going to be talking to someone that's in the market for a good that you're trying to sell how important is price extremely important we absolutely make sure that we uh, have a very very competitive price um, every day of the week on every product that we sell we um, fundamentally know that is one of the top three drivers uh, for our customers when buying off us or, or buying off anyone price is certainly um, a big factor how do you how do you get competitive pricing volume with the distributors or how does that work 
Yeah, so we are lucky enough that we have scale with over 300 million in turnover now. It wasn't always the case, so we used to have to have some very good negotiation and then obviously work on much, much tighter margins. Now we still work on very tight margins and whenever we can get a saving, we do like to pass those on to our customers. Uh, however, it's just about you know having having those great supplier relationships, representing the brands well and having the suppliers wanting to look after you at the end of the day. you know, If we're selling a brand um, that we need to be competitive on if they decided to make us uncompetitive they could do that by just changing our buy price so it's about making sure that those brands feel that we're representing them um, as a as a preferred partner to them and um, then we get we get good pricing that we can pass on to our customers competitively what about customer service i mean that is an issue for an online company how close do you get to your customers extremely close so at appliances online we've been nominated for best customer experience uh, at the Oracle World Retail Awards. So we feel that we, we play on a global best practice in terms of customer experience. It is fundamentally our business. You know, if I was to wrap everything up in a bow and say, what do you guys do? We provide the best shopping experience in the world and that's our mission. What specifically do you do around customer experience? So uh, things such as ha- having, we, we call it a where, what, wow strategy. We are uh, where our customers want to shop with us, online or offline or on mobile devices or on social media, any, anywhere they want to shop with us. We have the products that they want to buy from us. So we have the largest range of any appliance retailer in the country, online or offline. And um, we wow them with our service so that anything from 24-7 customer support through to free delivery, free connection, free removal of the old products, you know, depending on the area and, and what product it is. But even if we can't um, connect the product for free for things like ovens that might require a tradesperson, we have a separate business called Handy Crew which is a national uh, company 100% owned by us full of electricians and plumbers that can connect all of the goods that we sell in a one-stop shop so you only have to be home the one time to have your old product removed and new product installed. What do you see for the future of uh, the business? I think the future for us is extremely exciting. I think that you know we only currently have an, uh, about a two, two to three percent unprompted brand awareness. We know that the customers that shop with us love us, and uh, they do tell their friends, and they do come back time and time again. So I think by increasing that brand awareness over time, and when when our happy customers do keep telling their family and friends, and do keep repeating, you know it's a bit of a snowball effect. I think that you know we're seeing a lot of the market migrate to online and specifically to our business, and I think that as long as we can keep delivering that exceptional customer experience then customers will keep coming to us do you do you have um do you offer financing or connection with the financing hard purchase this sort of thing it's not a core part of our business but yeah absolutely we we appreciate that a lot of customers do like financing options it's not a big percentage of our customers that like financing the reason we don't promote it too heavily is that we feel that uh we don't like to give that customer experience uh to another business so I think when the purchase is done and the product's delivered then the only person that then owns the relationship with our customer is the finance company and we don't like losing that control however that being said when someone really um, wants to use financing as an option of payment we have it there we have a partnership with a company called Once Finance and I think it's one of the only uh, finance companies that can do 100% online approval so you can visit our website and without filling any forms doing any signatures or speaking with anyone you can get approved online for financing with appliances on Online. Now, one final question. What does your father now say about the business? 
Um, he says it's mine to run and don't bother him too much with the with the with the day to day details. He's quite happily retired. He spends most of his life on a golf course, or as he is at the moment over in Italy sailing. Um, yeah, he, he's. I think he is uh, quietly proud of, of what we've been able to achieve and he's extremely happy that, uh, I guess, our success has meant that he hasn't had to get too too involved in the day-to-day and he likes it that way and I, I appreciate not having him there every day as well. John Winning, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks, Liam. Thank you, John. What I found interesting about about John's piece was it's a whole thing. He can he does the uh, installation, he does the freight, he'll sell you the fridge, he'll bring it, take the old fridge away and if you want he'll uh, lead you to a finance company and you can't get that from any bricks and mortar retailer no not not this one package thing so now nick nick green tell us about personal information management systems how do Uh, they work personal information management uh, services are about uh, a market that should exist but that barely exists so let's say a bank with anz and uh, I get fed up with ANZ and I decide I want to go and bank with Bendigo Bank. I should be able to click a few things on my screen and say port all my personal information from Westpac to Bendigo. What I can do is I can fill out all the information or some of the information that I have and then I trot down to Bendigo Bank and I show them my passport and all that sort of stuff, and you go through all that hoopla again, even though you've already proven to your previous bank that who you were, and uh, you give them your information, which, of course, is much more partial than it would be if you could get a complete dump of the information from your all your past banking history, for instance, from your existing bank to some new bank. So that's personal information management and an an illustration of its utility. In Australia and in most countries, the personal information services market is really uh, kind of caught in a civil war. So people can sort of see its value. On the other hand, they're paranoid about privacy. Sometimes uh, that's a legitimate thing. Other times, people get on their high horse about privacy. For instance, one's shopping data. At the same day, at the same time as handing over all that data for an offer of about one cent in the dollar of frequent flyer points. However, it happens. This market is a substantial market. It's a market that can generate large efficiency gains and convenience gains for us, and it's barely in existence uh, for the reasons that I've just explained. Nick, one of the problems for the banks would appear to be that they're still using mainframes and legacy software and to port it into something like an app or a a smartphone would be enormously expensive, wouldn't it? I know that that's the line that essentially Bernie Fraser took uh, when he said that we couldn't have portable uh, bank accounts or that it would be hugely expensive to have portable bank accounts. I've got to say, uh, you know, the banks would say that, wouldn't they? I'm always a bit sceptical of these things. I think to port data perfectly between legacy systems is obviously very difficult, but to get the systems to spit out a CSV file, which can then be ported, doesn't strike me as the sort of thing that should be impossible. But But the kind of thing I'm envisaging here is not perfect portability, uh, but 
the ability to extract one's data from a company that has it uh, and then to rebuild from that data. And in fact, that is the, that's the way in which the UK is trying to build the market for personal information management systems. What impact would something like that have on an economy if we had to uh, pronounce personal information services? Well, I, um, I, I think I was on this show not so long ago talking about the value of open data, which is a different part of the data market, uh, where we might open up government data and encourage private data, not necessarily personal data, to be more open. And uh, Lateral Economics did a big study of that for an organisation called a Media Network. Our estimate, I think it's conservative, is that that type of open data offers growth, uh, an additional uh, sort of increment of economic growth to the economy of about 1% per, uh, 1% per annum. That's not 1% growth per annum, but it would increase the size of the economy by 1%. Now, that's, a, that's enough to salivate about for an economist. Most people don't think 1% is anything much, but uh, uh, that's $16 billion a year. And there's a, stu- a recent study in the UK, which is trying to, uh, w- which is really, I think, the only country that's having a really red hot go at building this market. Uh, They have a company called, a clever name, I think, Control Shift, uh, which is a consultancy company which did a study a little like ours in open data in the PIMS market, uh, personal information services market. Their finding was that it was worth about £16 billion a year to the British market. And a nice little rule of thumb for your listeners, is that billions of pounds in the UK is roughly, slightly less than, but it's roughly the same as billions of dollars in Australia. So it's about 1% of the economy if we could get that market flowing well. I, again, think that that is conservative because I think that all sorts of things would happen with the data that we couldn't, we can't really anticipate at this stage. Potentially, it could also mean we'd have a lot more innovation that's right. That, that's right. That's right. And, and I think it's probably important to, at this point, explain how the UK is trying to build that market, because I think it's trying to build the market in the only way that it can. Corporations like the idea of trading data, but people don't. <laughs> uh, people start getting paranoid about privacy. So in my opinion, and, and I think sometimes they do that. There's a bit of double think around that as in, in ways that I've explained to you that people can get very precious about, you know, some company that's got their shopping data, but they hand it over for uh, less than a cent in the dollar for a few frequent flyer points. But, but leave that to one side. I think any attempt to build this market on freer kind of Wild West data sharing between firms is just going to be die the death of a thousand political cuts. So what they've done in the UK is they have legislated to say, to give a right to consumers to demand from companies of a certain size that have a certain kind of data uh, footprint of them to demand from them the ability to download their personal data in a machine-readable form. The the legislation hasn't actually been promulgated, but as I understand, it's past parliament. and, And they have at the same time put together a partnership of 20 six or something like that, large organisations, eight of them are government agencies, the rest are companies like Sainsbury's and Google and so on, and they are trying to build 
an architecture whereby this market might be built up. Whenever I've heard about of putting citizens in touch with their data or in charge of their data, I've always been a bit sceptical because it's such a, a kind of attention intensive process to kind of manage where your data goes. But of course, what I'm, miss, what I'm missing when I'm thinking like that is that what will happen is that you'll get data brokers and people will come in and say, if you give, so, so some company will come in and say, if you give me your data, uh, firstly, this is, these, are, these are my guarantees to you that it will remain private. Uh, and secondly, this is how I'm going to get you specials at the supermarket. This is how I'm going to help you manage your financial affairs. This is how I'm going to help you get, get health updates, which are particularly relevant to people with your buying history, financial history, health history, and so on. And I think once you do that, I think things start to really move and you get some really, we, we will get some really exciting outcomes. And then you get around the problem of, as you said, people don't like sharing data. Uh, well, they, they, they do and they don't, but, but, they, but certainly it's quite easy to run a pretty devastating political campaign around somebody's misbehaviour with your data. But if, you, but if it's up to you uh, and you say, oh, well, I'm not giving my data back to that broker, I'll give it to this other broker that doesn't do that, then, then I think the whole politics of that become much more possible and it becomes possible for people to start making decisions in their own interest. And I don't think we make decisions in our own interest at the moment. A lot of people get freaked out that, you know, Google knows the next plane they're going to catch or something like that. Uh, there's lots of people feel kind of creeped out by the whole thing. And yet you can see how much utility there is in, in a service that can do that for you. And so we have to bridge that trust gap, I suppose. Nicholas Grin, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. What do you reckon, Leon? Well, it certainly does seem to be a big economic opportunity, Gary. Yeah, well, we could do with those too. Absolutely. And now the news. What do we got? Well, Gary, let's start off with China and <laughs> the property market there is going through its worst slump on record with the average price of new homes in 70 Chinese cities falling for the third straight month in July. Property developers are cutting prices to reduce inventory and the market is in downturn. And the average price of new homes in 70 cities sells at 0.89% in July and that compares with the 0.47% on month-on-month fall in June another fall in May. Yeah, th- this isn't too good, Leon, because you remember the, gra- the, uh, the great financial crisis was part of the, the housing was the thing. That's right, and it seems to be happening in China. Well, May was the first drop in two years, and it's keep still heading south. On the other hand, the Eurozone's trade surplus with the rest of the world has actually picked up. Now, that's rare good news for the Eurozone's struggling economy. What's interesting is the data shows the deteriorating deteriorating relationship with Moscow, where the government in Kiev is battling pro-Russian forces in the country's eastern regions, and the Eurozone exports to Russia, which were slowing even before the European Union agreed to tighter sanctions on Moscow, were lower in the year to May than they were a year ago. So the Eurobond's surplus in goods trade with the rest of the world swelled to 16.8 billion euro, that's about $22.5 billion, compared with a surplus of 15.4 billion euro in May and a surplus of 15.7 billion in June. 
But the improvement was driven by an export rise in exports to China, the US and UK. But exports to Russia were actually 14% lower in the year to May than they were in the same period. And that was before the the boycott started. Well, yeah, Russia's got economic problems, though, so, and they're fairly well controlled um that's right. Well, well, yes, but uh, this is this is going to be quite. So, with the economic sanctions, we can expect it's going to get even worse. Well, yeah, because there'll be no investment. So, countries like Germany, which supply a lot of uh, high-value goods, are going to going to feel it. That's right. Now, to the U.S. and home construction has actually surged in July, and that's a sign of renewed strength in the housing market. There, housing starts actually climbed fifteen point seven percent in July from a month ago. And that's the highest level of construction since November. And that's a good sign for the U.S. housing market. Yep. Yeah, the, we've been talking about this, these gradual improvements, a steady improvement for months now. That's right. Now, it's been going on. So that's a good sign. Now, unfortunately, in Australia, the United Nations released a report saying the Australian economy faces sluggish growth and the UN is warning about an asset bubble in the property sector that needs to be closely monitored. And the UN report forecasts economic growth of Australia of 2.8% because of falling mining investments, fiscal retraint and fragile private consumption. And the sliding commodity prices, which has been a driving force of growth in recent years, is adding to the economic slowdown against the backdrop of a weak global economy. Yeah, there's a worrying trend also. Um, the uh, Financial Review's got a story this morning saying uh, people have been buying flats in uh, Melbourne and they can't rent them at a, at a viable rate. That's right. So they're not getting much back on it. No, having to drop the price. That's right. And they might be doing their money. Could well be. Meanwhile, Reserve Bank Governor Glenn Stevens says he expects economic growth to be below trend in the near term. He believes that this outlook means that it will be a while before there's any sustained reductions in the rate of unemployment. He told that to the House of Representatives Economics Committee in Brisbane. And the jobless rate, of course, struck a 12-year high of 6.4% in July. And meanwhile, the Reserve Bank is warning of a significant degree of uncertainty about the economic outlook. Minutes from the bank's August meeting show the board expects inflation to remain consistent with its target rate of 2 to 3% over the next two years. And what that means is interest rates will probably stay on hold. At least hold, and, and um, some are talk, talking about a rise. Now, what's interesting is that Australia's misery index, which is the sum of unemployment and inflation rates, is at nine. That's the highest since 2008 when Lehman Brothers collapsed and that froze credit markets around the world and triggered the global financial crisis, Gary. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And we've been miserable ever since. Now, the misery index is higher than when policymakers began their latest easing cycle that brought rates to a record record low of 2.5%. It was nine in June based on a jobless rate of 6% that month and uh, inflation of 3%. And since those numbers were issued, the jobless rate has jumped to a 12-year high of 6.4%. And, of course, Australian employers are squeezed by currencies, which is trading at more than 90 cents over the past seven years, compared with 70 US cents in the 20 years before that. And that's been exacerbated by a slowdown in mining investment. The government projected last week will result in the loss of more than 12,000 jobs in the next four years. Yeah, not a good outlook, Leon. No, no. And, and of course, the Australian jobless rate, it surpassed the US level last month for the first time since 2007. So Australia's misery index is 9. America's misery index is 8.2. And in Britain's, it's 8.3. So Australia is ahead of the rest of the world. <laughs> They've got to be ahead on something. That's right. Uh, in terms of misery, we're doing really well. 
Interestingly, though, Gary, the Abbott government's agreed to a deal to restart uranium exports to India. That's almost three years after the Gillard government first announced plans to overturn the ban. It's going to be signed by Tony Abbott on a trip to India next month. And it's pretty controversial because India hasn't signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. This deal with India has been coming for a long while. Now, US and oil and oil player Apache has made what is being fated as Australia's biggest oil discovery in 30 years and is fueling hopes of a new oil province located off the northwest coast. The field found by the Phoenix South One Well, which is targeting gas rather than oil, could have potentially up to 300 million barrels of oil in place, according to Apache. It's still relatively small compared with you know the Venezuelas and the Saudis. 300 million barrels, pretty good. That's right. And Gary, of course, it's profit season. So let's take a look at all the profits that have been coming in this week. Yeah. Let's start it off with BHP. They booked a profit of $13.83 billion. That's up 23.2%. And BHP has also announced it's spinning off its aluminium and manganese assets to focus on iron ore, petroleum, copper and coal. So it's going to be a separate company. West Farmers' profit rose 19% to $2.689 billion, boosted by the sale of its insurance division. AGL profit rose 52% to $570 million in the year to June. That's quite amazing. Well, yeah, considering what they're having to spend on network, and I think they're going to get a catch a cold. People are going to complain about the price of energy. That's right. And Fortescue posted a net profit of uh, US $2.73 billion, or Australian $2.93 billion. That's up 56%. Woodside delivered a net profit of $1.105 billion. That's up 26.6%. But the reject shop had a profit of $14.5 million. That's down 25.4%. Brambles posted a profit of $584.5 million. That's up 5%. Seek, on the other hand, net profit came in at $195.6 million. That's down 35%. And Coca-Cola Amatil's profit also fell 15.6% to $182.3 million. On the other hand, National Australia Bank posted a cash profit of $1.6 billion. Diversified Property Group Stockland posted a profit of $570 million, which is up massively on the $105 million it had the previous year. Meridian Energy's uh, profit uh, was... Uh, New Zealand, $229.8 million or $209.4 million Aussie. Ansel's net profit was $41.8 million. That's down 70% on the $139.2 million in the previous corresponding period. That's a worry. It's the, uh, Australia's biggest condom maker and they're not selling so many. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Newcrest posted a net loss of uh, $2.2 uh, million. That's actually better than the $5.78 billion loss uh, they've recorded in the previous year. That's quite a big, uh, big pullback. There's been uh, significant items of $2.65 billion, including asset impairments and uh, more taxes and restructured costs and write-downs. Australia's biggest freight operator, Horizon, posted a 43% fall in full-year net profit. Net profit was $253 million for Horizon. That's down from $447 million. Uh, leisure and th company and theme park operator Arden posted a profit of 49 million. That's up 37.6 million. QBE's profit was 392 million. That's down 18%. But that was all uh, well flagged before. IAG profit jumped 58.9% to 1.233 billion, compared to 776 million the year before, which is quite good. Oil Search, their profit was $152.5 which is up 34%. Dick Smith 
made a pro forma profit of 42.1 million. That's actually 5.3% better than it was in the prospectus, Gary. Yeah, that, that's very, very good, given how bad retail's been. That's right. And uh, healthcare group Sonic's net profit rose $385 million. Hardly surprising, given the way the healthcare sector's uh, booming. Recycling and waste managing company TransPacific, their puzzled net profit of $11.5 million. Amcor's net profit was $564.8 million. That's down 3.2%. Arium's Post profit was 205.4 million. That's much better than the net loss of 701 million they had the previous year, which is a good sign. Toll had a 5.7% increase in their profit to 298.5 million. That's up from 282.5 million in the previous year. That's quite good. Now, Glencore, their profit shrunk to 1.72 billion. During the first half of the year, as increased output followed the mining commodity group's acquisition of Xstrata. And that's beginning to bear fruit. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. That's really good. And uh, we'll be back next week with... Great interview with uh, Professors Warren Staples and Charlie Wang from RMIT. And they're going to be talking to us all about Australian companies working with China. Yeah, and very interesting it is too. And, and how Chinese companies operate here and what that means. Look forward to that. And in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook.